Welcome to Compilation of Learning, a podcast where we interview educators who are actively working on their craft. Today is our first episode, Observation, and we'll be talking to Sarah Kish, an educator who is currently studying online. Welcome to the show, Sarah. So, what did you learn about yourself as an observer by going through this process? I found this process quite challenging. I realized I'd been approaching observation and documentation with an agenda. I was doing it all wrong. I only listened to what I could document as curricular learning because I needed evidence for portfolios. I was uncomfortable with this, so observation and documentation had become a difficult, intense thing for me. I took this apprehension with me as I took up observation from the perspective of this course. Last school year, I had an experience of a child noticing I was documenting, and she asked me to stop. Upon reflection, I can see now that I was documenting on her, and she felt that. That's why documentation had become to feel like an invasion of privacy. It was an intrusion. I now see observation and documentation as a process with the children, an act of care, but only if I do it authentically, if I sit down and watch and wonder with the pedagogy of listening at the forefront. Not if I grab the camera and sticky notes because it looks like someone is doing something I can later say, yes, see, here, this, they were learning. The school believes in play-based learning, but I feel that's part of the problem for me. It's the backwardness of it. You need to extrapolate learning from the play, but only predetermined curricular learning, which is how observation and documentation became listening to respond rather than listening to understand. To be honest, it's been a relief to understand these tensions and to see the way forward. And for me, that's to observe and document with the pedagogy of listening at the forefront. As an observer, I learned how easy it is to get away from observation and documentation that aligns with my image of the child. I now see that image of the child aligning with my observation and documentation is my professional life's work. I don't think I will ever be done pushing myself to learn and grow in this area of my practice. a little bit more about what you mean by pedagogy of listening? True listening happens with all of our senses. It's what's often referred to as listening to understand, not listening to respond. Rinaldi says, listening means being open to differences, recognizing the value of another's point of view and interpretation. Thus, listening becomes not only a pedagogical strategy, but also a way of thinking and looking at others. So listening isn't easy. It requires us to have an awareness of what's going on in our own minds and to suspend those judgments and the thinking and to just really watch, to notice, and to document the what's happening at the time. And it cannot be objective. It is absolutely subjective because we bring our biases and assumptions while we observe children. In what ways did you notice that these assumptions and biases hold you back from understanding and building relationships with children? I bring my Western perspective of education and parenting into the classroom with me every day. The lens I see things through has affected my assumptions as an observer. For example, our framework is PYP defined and one of the attitudes that we cultivate or strive to is curiosity. I reflected on how I've noticed that many Western children are the ones who drive projects because their curiosity is how I would define what it means to be curious. 
than many of the children from Asian nations watch, and I wasn't defining their observations as being curious. It absolutely is, and I feel foolish now, thinking that I never saw this before. In only listening, observing, and documenting those children who I defined as being curious, I communicate who and what is important in our class. So now I'm reflecting on all of those attributes I value in a learner, and I'm critically thinking about how my narrow definitions impact the relationships with children and families, because I'm not able to appreciate each child as an individual if I clearly have a bias towards a familiar white expression of these values. Lisa Delpit says, We all carry worlds in our heads, and those worlds are decidedly different. We educators set out to teach, but how can we reach the worlds of others when we don't even know they exist? So what I realized was that I was expecting the children to leave their worlds at the door and develop in ways that are defined by the International Baccalaureate. And that was really preventing authentic relationships from happening because I couldn't see the children for who they are. And I can now see that that is white supremacy. Thanks for your honest reflections. Can you share a little bit more with us about how your personal, cultural, and racial biases and assumptions affected you as an observer? In White Fragility, D'Angelo says, Whites hold the social and institutional positions in society to infuse their racial prejudice into laws, policies, practices, and norms of society in a way that people of color do not. So, in reflecting on this, it absolutely reflects the international education system. Um, I've realized a lot of different things. I realized how much I value independence and that the children who aren't independent, I was judging their parents and making assumptions about them, about their wealth, about their values, about their beliefs about education and parenting. I realize that I observe and document children doing things independently a lot, and I feel that I do so because I'm trying to show parents their children are capable, but there's much richer learning that's happening in the classroom that demonstrate capability that isn't taking your shoes and socks off by yourself. My bias was preventing me from understanding children from unfamiliar cultures because I was expecting acculturation. I also realized that I have a bias towards children from other countries I've lived in because it's easier for me to make connections to them, to build a relationship because, like Western children, I have some understanding of their culture. I have a bias against wealthy people and I make assumptions about their values and their parenting and their children. So as an observer, how can I really listen to these children with all of the assumptions that I've made? I had been confirming these biases in my observations of children, seeing behaviors that align with my thinking and not seeing them for who they are. The characteristics of white supremacy culture uh, webpage had a significant impact on my thinking. It's a resource I revisited, digested, shared, and kept coming back to. But my initial reaction was irritability. I was defensive because some of these characteristics I see in myself as a part of a team. Um, the power of observation says that if you have a strong reaction to a child, you need to pay attention and listen. And I think that that extends to any area of our learning. So I listened. It wasn't easy, but I listened. And I read some more. And I thought about how these characteristics apply to the organization I work in and to my observations. I think systems of power run much deeper than skin color. Bell Hooks defines racism as imperialist, white supremacy, capitalist patriarchy, and I feel this is irrefutable. 
At the start of this process, I was naive to how deep my biases and privilege run, to how much they shape my teaching. I've acknowledged the tensions with parents' expectations of education and the disconnect with what we as a school are offering, but I never connected it to white supremacy. I was often frustrated with the clash and saw the children as being stuck in the middle. The early childhood article touched on Lisa Delpit's essays and mentioned the ways that black children negotiate acculturation of language and that the best possible scenario is that the children learn both styles of language appropriate for each setting. While I can see how this helps the children, I can't help but wonder how acculturation plays out in international schools, particularly in the classroom that I'm in. I've realized that I need to become a better listener. I want to observe with the students, not on them, and I want to open up dialogue with parents on how they view their child, how they see the values of the defined classroom, and how their language and culture shape their child and learning. I will be listening to understand, not listening to reply, not listening to explain to them the framework of the classroom or the curriculum and learning from my perspective. Listening as a partner who has much to learn. I plan on making a similar template to reflect on conversations I have with parents once I've returned to the classroom. So it'll have two columns, the what of the conversation and the assumptions, the interpretations and further questions. This has been a complicated and messy process where I don't have a lot of answers. But what I keep coming back to is that our observation and documentation are our platform. They are how we shape the ways that readers listen to our children and see a fresh image of the child, a place for dismantling bias and the system from within. In Reggio, they use their documentation to shape image of the child with the community, and I can use this inspiration um, for my setting.